today, we're starting a new sermon series. Um, this is just a, a note on uh, Christian time and how we celebrate time. Like, what time is it? Uh, Christianity has an answer for that. Um, we're, we're in the midst of ordinary time, what's called ordinary time, um, which is kind of a funny name for it, I think. But it, it's fitting. It sort of feels like, well, we're just sort of, you know, it's just ordinary. But it, it refers to just uh, ordered time. It, it, it means that during half the, about half the year, we tell the story of Jesus. Uh, starts in Advent, which is like the last weekend of November or the first weekend of December usually. And it starts in Advent for four Sundays. We, we celebrate the birth of Christ during Christmas. Uh, we celebrate the revelation of Jesus to the Gentiles during Epiphany. Uh, and then we come into the season of Lent, uh, where we prepare. It's 40 days uh, of preparation for the crucifixion. Of course, we celebrate Holy Week, Easter Sunday, 50, d- 50 days of Easter, and then we celebrate Pentecost. Okay, That's like a super quick flyby. December to May, usually, um, or first weekend of June. Um, and then the rest of the season is just, the rest of the time is just ordinary time. And so what we're, what we're doing as a church is uh, reading the appointed texts during Advent to Pentecost. But during ordinary time, we're saying, like, we're asking the Spirit. We're saying, Spirit, what do you want to teach us? What do you want to train us in? How do you want us to grow? Because ordinary time, the colors are green. It's all about growth. It's all about um, growing in Christ-likeness. It's all about spiritual formation. Um, if you remember, we started with a series on money, um, and then we did a series on baptism, which we just came through, and now we're going to spend the rest of our time, in ordinary time, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, about 11 weeks, including today. That's going to take us all the way to the first Sunday in December, which is the first Sunday of Advent. Um, so today, I'm just going to frame the Sermon on the Mount for us and give us some context. What is this that we're going to be listening to? How should we listen to it? How is it good news for us? And then uh, over the next few weeks, uh, our, we're going to reactivate our preaching team. So that'll be fun. Who's doing next week? I don't even know. Spencer? Spencer's going to teach us about the Beatitudes. He's going to proclaim good news from the Beatitudes next week. Um, that's good. Was there a cheer? Somebody cheer for that? I cheer. Yeah, great. That's good. All right. I was going to say that's appropriate. I bring the cheer. Yeah. I can't wait to hear about it. So anyway, that's, uh, that's what we're going to do. Okay? Sound good? So we're going to proclaim good news from the passage we read uh, today, especially from uh, Matthew that Sharon read for us, um, which is kind of the outline of the sermon. It's the first part of the sermon and the last part of the sermon. We want to talk about what it is that we're, that we're, that we're talking about. What is the Sermon on the Mount? How do we, how do we engage it? Um, but I would love to hear from you guys. Like, what's your experience been with the Sermon on the Mount? Like, when you hear that we're going to do a series on the Sermon on the Mount, what are the immediate things that come to mind about the Sermon on the Mount? Like, what do you associate with it? Anybody? Like social issues. Social issues, okay. What else comes to mind? <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited. Preaching on a mountain. Preaching on a mountain. <laughs> yes. Yeah, like what's up with that? Why is he on a mountain? That's actually a really important uh, part of the story. Uh, anything else come to mind? The play that we did back in the Nazarene Church. <laughs> yeah? What was the play? It was about, it was about the sermon? Okay. Okay. Um, but there's always like this time where the kids can participate. Yes. So there was a little boy who always said, "Lampstand," really loud. Yeah. Because you, you know the part where he says, "You don't hide a city on a hill." Yeah, yeah, and he would say, "Lampstand," really loud. Lampstand. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if any of us can relate to that, but that's a very that's fascinating. Uh, that's what comes to mind for you. That's great, Caleb. <laughs> that's really good. Um, has anybody ever heard, we'll talk about this in a bit, but has anybody ever heard the 
Sermon on the Mount preached as like, you can't do this. It's like, don't try it. Anybody ever heard that? Yeah, a little bit? Okay. We'll get into that. But I want to just say for now that the way that we're going to preach this Sermon on the Mount is as if Jesus, number one, knew what he was talking about. And number two, intended for us to actually put these things into practice. And that it actually creates something it actually uh, helps us participate in something is maybe a better way to say it, that we don't get to participate in unless we learn to take Jesus' words seriously here. So uh, that's what we're going to talk about. Um, I want to tell a story first. Uh, I was in Birmingham this last week, Birmingham, Alabama, first time I've ever been to that city, and um, letter from a Birmingham jail. I got to drive right past that jail. It was kind of cool. Um, and so uh, I was there, and I was, it's kind of convoluted why I was there, but I was basically doing some consulting work for an organization that wants to do some research with this community, this church community that we were part of in Birmingham. And um, it's a very non-traditional church community um, in that uh, they don't have a, you don't even have a worship service like we have, like, like as small as our community as we have, the, you know, we've got this worship service. They don't even have that. They are um, a hyper-local community. They talk about being within baby monitor distance of each other, um, which just means I can go over to my neighbor's house bring my baby monitor and hear if my baby starts crying. Yeah? So baby monitor distance, another person called it sock distance, which means I can walk to your house in my socks without too much trouble. I thought that was kind of funny. Um, so, they, they're really in, so they buy up like 10 houses on 10th Avenue and 19th Street and uh, an, uh, an area they called uh, Titusville. I don't know why they call it Titusville, but everybody pronounced it Titusville. So these, they've got these three sort of hyper-local communities that was, that was my thought. I was like, never mind. Um, but they've got these three hyper-local communities. They're together all the time. They're living among the poor. They buy all these houses on the same street so they can live with one another and be on mission together. They're sharing their resources. They're sharing their cars. We literally saw this happen while we were there. Um, there was, there was a, we were eating dinner with one family that was actually, there was like two people living with them and then like two other people that were next door and we were all together eating. And somebody else came in, a neighbor came in and was like, noticed our conversation and very quietly said, like, can I get the car? Can I get the keys to the car? And it was like, no big deal. It was like, yeah, they're over in the kitchen and they went and grabbed the car. And, and then the other guy casually mentioned to me, he said, yeah, he goes, I've been driving my, my, other, my other neighbor's car all week because mine's in the shop. Like, and so they're doing this like sharing thing. And what, there was another guy that was with us that was like, hey, can I leave my bag in your car? And the guy's like, no. Like, this car will probably be gone by the time we're done meeting. He's like, what? Why? Like, is it going to get stolen? He goes, no, it's just like everybody knows if you need a car, just grab one. Isn't that crazy? Anyway, I thought that was like, it, they're, they're, this is their community, though. This is what they're doing. Um, they're starting businesses together. They own this coffee shop and this co-working space. Uh, they have a CrossFit gym. Uh, they've got a babysitting co-op. They do tutoring and mentoring among the poor. Like, they've got all this stuff happening, and it's this really intense kind of community that's living together doing this kind of stuff. And so as we were doing the research, I was expecting to find these like hardcore warriors, this intensity, this, you know, we do the serious stuff for the gospel, you know, that kind of a thing. But I was surprised to find there is an intensity to their group, but I was, what I was surprised to find was the joy that they have. Probably all of them live below the poverty line. But they, they don't look like they're living in poverty. They, they just have this intense joy 
uh, that was that was it, that was evident in all the interviews that we did. Again, we were doing some research there. They seemed genuinely happy. They seemed it seemed like they had what they had gained from living such a life so far outweighed what they gave up that they were like, "This is just how I live now." And uh, what was especially astonishing to me, there was there were two other people that were there with me and this other guy. And these two people that were part of the organization that wanted to do the research, you don't need to, it's, a, it's kind of a Christian organization, but you don't need to be a Christian to work there. And so these two people that were working with me in this organization, they weren't necessarily Christians. They were, one guy grew up Lutheran, he had some faith crisis in college and never really thought about it again. Uh, another woman didn't have any church background at all. She's in her 20s and she's just sort of, you know, she's just doing her job there, just doing this research. And right at the end of our time, we spent like two and a half days with them, and it was Friday afternoon, right at the end of our time, you know, they said, hey, like, what, do you guys have any input for us or anything like that? You know, like, what, what do you think? We weren't there to, like, coach them or give them input, but they asked for it. They said, like, what do you, what do you guys think? And so I shared a couple things. I just said, you guys have been really encouraging to me, really challenging to me, honestly. Um, and then, you know, they asked these other two people that they didn't know weren't Christians, really. I mean, you know, maybe they're Christians, but they're sort of like, you know, they're on the fence. They're not you know, like, really serious about it. So, um, you know, maybe agnostic is the best way you could say it. And um, this, uh, this woman just starts weeping. She started weeping. And she just said, what you guys have is so beautiful. Like, everybody needs this. And the other guy, uh, he wasn't really a weeper, you know what I mean, the kind? Spencer? Kind of Spencer, like, kind of like Spencer. Uh, but, but he... <laughs> But he almost cried, too, and he basically just said, like, I had this faith crisis in college, and I haven't really thought about this seriously. But he goes, you guys have given me hope that there might be something to this Christianity thing. So uh, I share that because what I saw was they had a good and beautiful life together, and it was compelling to people who, like, I don't know if you can argue, like, argue someone into believing in the resurrection, but this person sees the life that they're living and is weeping because she wants it and she wants everybody to have it. Every city should have something like this, she said. They have a good and beautiful life together and it's compelling. They have it in spite of tri- trials and troubles. You know, they get their cars stolen and uh, they, they, they experience uh, a certain amount of suffering, a certain amount of persecution even, loneliness, rejection. But it's a good and a beautiful life that doesn't square with most of the messages that I think about when I think about, like, what does it mean for me to live a good and beautiful life? Like, how do I get the good life? I was just struck by how many of my own categories were sort of turned inside out by this community. When I think about how to get the good life, I mean, I don't normally think about it, but, like, when I think about that, I don't normally think about, oh, living below the poverty line. (laughs) Like, that doesn't immediately pop into my head. I have different automatic ideas. You guys know what I mean by an automatic idea? Like, what's my automatic idea about how to get a good life, a better life? Right? For me, it has to do with, like, I'd like to make a little bit more money. Like, it'd be nice to just be a little bit more comfortable. Right? Like, that immediately pops into my head. I think about that, you know? I think, like, man, it'd be nice if my kids were getting along all the time and not fighting. They don't fight that much, but sometimes they do. Right? Um, that's, that's the kind of thing that pops into my head. I, uh, the other kind of thing that pops into my head is, like, I'd love to just get more time by myself. <laughs> I love solitude. I just love being by myself. And so I'd love to get more time by myself. And that, that's kind of, you know what I mean? Like that's where my mind automatically goes when I think about that kind of stuff. And this is really the question that we're all sort of desperate to answer. 
whether or not we frame it that way, but what does it mean to live a good life or the good life? Like, what does it mean to be happy? <laughs> like, what are, we, what are we looking for that's going to fulfill these desires that we have? One way of framing it is like, and you see this in politics right now, like, we need to kill all the bad guys. Then we'll have the good life, right? This is what ISIS believes. You need to kill those bad guys. This is what the enemies of ISIS believe. We need to kill those bad guys. No, you guys are the bad guys. We're going to kill you. And once we get rid of or kill or remove all the bad people, whoever they are, however we define it, then we'll be able to live in safety. Then we'll have the good life. Right? That's one definition. Um, you know, another definition of the good life is I'd love to have a well-appointed home. Yeah? You guys know this magazine, Real Simple? I feel like that's, a, that's an advertisement for the good life. It's like, wouldn't you like your kitchen to look like this? Like, ooh, then I'd be living the good life, right? A lot of us, uh, you know, a lot of us click on Pinterest boards for this reason as well. You know, it's like, wow, that's pretty, that's good. And I'm not saying any of this stuff is bad, right? Um, but I'm saying, like, these are, the, these are the things that we think about when it's time to live the good life. What does that mean? I'd love to redo the kitchen. I'd love to have this kind of, you know, this kind of lifestyle. Uh, some people think I'm going to have the good life if I get an iPhone 10. You know, right? Like, oh, man. $1,000, I'm going to save up. Uh, some people think, I'm going to live the good life if I simplify. I just want to live in one of those tiny homes. Um, that's what I want to do, right? That's going to be it. That's going to be it for me. I'm going to live the good life. Uh, some people, some of us think, you know, I'm going to live the good life if my spouse or my kids or my parents would just change in this way, right? If they could just stop doing this or doing that, then I could live the good life. And all the advertisements we see are basically the, a, a picture it's trying to basically say, here's how you can have the good life. You just need to make this purchase. You just need to buy this product. You just need to buy this service. But that's what we're chasing, these lifestyle shows, right? Nothing against Chip and Joanna. <laughs> but what they're doing is giving us a picture of the good life and, and then attaching that, right, through advertisements and other things, to these products. Like That's what they're trying to say to us. You can have the good life. It just costs this much money, right? It just costs this, this thing that you need to get, right? I mean, I, I look at Chip and Joanna, and I, I, kind of, I kind of think, like, I like their marriage. You guys know what I mean? Like, I think, oh, that'd be fun. Like, a, you know what I mean? Like, that's the good life, is having this kind of jokey, you know, marriage, that kind of thing. Um, so anyway, so nothing against them. I'm saying, you know, it's, 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 it's fine. But this question of how do I get the good life is actually the question that all religion and all philosophy has been asking for centuries. Like, this is the question. It's the question. What is the good life? And how do I get it? Because basically, that's basically what people are asking. This is what Aristotle was asking in Plato and all philosophy, Confucius. How can we experience true human flourishing? What is happiness? What is blessedness? Shalom is the way that the ancient Jews put it. Like, how do we obtain this? And how do we sustain this? Who has the good life? And how do you get it? The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' answer to that question. Like that question that haunts all of humanity, it would be good for us to look at Jesus on the mountain as a philosopher, basically, as a sage, saying, you, want, you guys want to know how to get the good life? I'm about to tell you. I'm about to drop some wisdom. It's kind of what Jesus is saying, the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' constitution of a new arrangement for human society. It's his government and how it works. That's another word for the kingdom of God, is the government of God, right? The will of God is called the, you could call it the politics of God. It gives it a little bit more bite, doesn't it? 
It's the arrival of the new government, this kingdom of God, the politics of Jesus, this new arrangement for human society that actually does bring flourishing for all, that actually answers the question, that actually enables us to live a good and beautiful life. And so here it is, in the midst of the noise of a million voices telling us we'll finally be happy if we just get that one next thing, we proclaim today the good news that the good and beautiful life is available to us right now, today, because through Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God has come near. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. In Birmingham, I got uh, imperfect, but a picture of a good and beautiful life lived by people who were taking Jesus seriously. They were taking him seriously, and it resulted in a good and a beautiful life. And the, the thing is, is that it looks a lot different. A truly good and beautiful life looks a lot different than what we see on HGTV. And so we have to pay attention to what Jesus is telling us about how to actually live a good and beautiful life. This good and beautiful life is available to us. So let's dive into the sermon real briefly, just the text that we read today, and then uh, we'll come to the table. Um, the Sermon on the Mount uh, has been interpreted, and I, I alluded to this earlier, like how many people have heard that the sermon isn't actually meant to be obeyed, right? The Sermon on the Mount has been interpreted such as to kind of remove, to make it harmless, to remove its teeth. To basically tell us, you actually don't need to pay attention to this. It's just interesting that Jesus said all these things, right? <laughs> I mean, that's kind of that's how it's been interpreted. Now, the ancient Christians just interpreted it at face value. They were like, oh, this is how we live together, and this is what we should do. But eventually, we kind of, and it's a long story theologically, but here, here's some ways that we can misread the sermon. So I want to, like, some of this stuff is rattling around in the back of our mind, so I just want to, like, call it out and say, hey, we can, let's read it differently. One way of reading the sermon is this, that Jesus is kind of like a meaner Moses, He's like Moses on steroids, right? So he's Moses, and he's at the top of the mountain. He's given the Ten Commandments, and Israel's like, oh, these Ten Commandments are so hard. And Jesus is like, you thought that was hard? I'm going to give you the Sermon on the Mount, right? And it's meant to just crush us under its weight so that we're like, oh, I need mercy. And Jesus is like, good, I'll give you mercy, right? So you can tell by the way I'm saying that story that I don't believe that, right? <laughs> I'm mocking it a little bit. But that's not how we want to read the sermon. Jesus isn't a meaner Moses. This isn't the law on steroids. It's not impossible, okay? So let's put that out of our minds. The second way that we can misread the Sermon on the Mount is that it can be private. It's all about me and my private attitudes, not about my public living, not about the way that we actually organize ourselves as a church. It's more about me more about my private attitudes, and it's more about just try to be like this privately if you can, but really just don't worry about it one way or another. Like, it doesn't need to make its way into your politics. It doesn't need to make its way into the way that you live in your neighborhood, right? We don't want to read the sermon that way. That's a misreading, I think. Uh, another way that people have misread the sermon is that it's only for the elite. It's like for monks and priests, but the rest of us ordinary Christians can pretty much ignore it. Let's not read it that way either. Um, and then finally, uh, I think there's a way of reading it as a manual. Almost like, oh, we need to do these explicit things that Jesus said, right? And there's been people who've done this. You know, to, to, um, some good things have come out of it. But like, for example, like, oh, don't take oaths. I will never take an oath, right? So reading it as rules rather than pictures of what living in the kingdom looks like. We want to read it as pictures of what the kingdom looks like, not as hard and fast rules, requirements that Jesus is giving us, Okay. So what Jesus is giving us in the sermon here is this revelation from God, this good news about the good and beautiful life. It's pictures, it's illustrations of what the kingdom looks like as it springs up in the present, this future kingdom that's become present. What does it look like? Jesus is saying, well, here's, I'll, tell, I'll teach you about it. 
I'll teach you how to live in this kingdom that I've, that I've brought near. I'll teach you how to do that. Uh, the sermon, it's, it's tied to Jesus. It's not just some random dude saying these things. Like, Jesus is the king of this kingdom. Um, it's tied to the church, which means we can only live these things out together. And it's also tied to the spirit, which means we can only live these things out as we're empowered by the spirit, okay? So those three things have to be in our minds. And in, in essence, in the text we read is, is the Sermon on the Mount gives us this call, will you follow me? It's Jesus saying, will you follow me? Will you trust me that a good and beautiful life is possible? Just listen to what I say. I'm going to give you a new way of life. It's going to, it's going to mess with you a little bit. It's not going to be according to the categories that you think uh, a good life is. But, but if you'll trust me, you'll see what happens. So in the text that we read today, Jesus, we started with Jesus announcing his ministry. This was his program, right? You remember what he said? Repent for the kingdom of God, for the kingdom of the heavens has come near. Repent for the kingdom of the heavens has come near. And that just means that it's within reach. It's available. And what Jesus was doing was drawing upon this whole prophetic tradition where the prophets were saying, like, God is going to come back to Israel and he's going to establish his kingdom and we're going to have the good life. A good and beautiful life will come. It's going to be shalom. There's going to be peace. It's going to be, there's going to be justice for the poor. Like everything good about a good and beautiful life, this picture that the prophets painted, Jesus announces in his ministry that's become available now. Like that future kingdom has become available in the present. It's springing up out of the soil of the present. The future is growing up out of the soil of the present. Isn't that amazing? This is like sci-fi stuff, guys. You guys don't look as excited as I am about this. It's amazing. It's springing up out of the soil. So another way to say this, I remember when I lived in Fort Wayne, and we had like, you guys remember like DSL? Or like dial-up internet? Remember when you had to like, you know, like you had to listen to your modem, make all those sounds to get on the internet? That was ridiculous, right? But anyway, um, I remember when like broadband, like they were installing this new thing called fiber optic internet. And they were installing it in our town, in our neighborhood. And I remember getting so excited because I was like, I can get fast internet. Another way, it's almost like the, the company, Verizon, that was advertising this, was basically handing out flyers saying, repent for the kingdom of fiber optic internet is at hand. That's, that's the message that Jesus is giving here. He's basically saying, this, like, rethink your life in light of this radical new opportunity that's being given to you. Rethink everything. That's what repent means. Just rethink it. Because look, here's what's available to you now. The kingdom is available. Okay? That good and beautiful life that God has promised through the prophets is now within reach. Jesus then call, he announces that. He calls some disciples to be with him. And then, and then the text announces his program. He says he uh, went everywhere and he taught. He, he was teaching, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And then the sermon. And then he goes up on a mountain and sits down and he teaches his disciples. Um, and what Jesus is doing here is saying, I, I want to take my disciples, I want to take those who follow me beyond just experiencing momentary benefits of the kingdom, like healing. This is a wonderful momentary benefit. But he's saying, I want to teach you to live in this kingdom all the time. And that's going to mean not just following me around and asking me to you know, heal you when you get sick. That's going to mean training in a new way of life. And that's what the sermon is all about. In the midst of the noise of a million voices telling us that we'll finally be happy if we just get that one next thing, we proclaim today the good news that the good and beautiful life is available to us right now today because through Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God has come near. And the sermon is basically Jesus saying, here's my vision of how this, king, how this works out. Okay? So that's what we're going to talk about. 
Um, Matthew here is painting Jesus as kind of a new Moses. Basically, that's, that's the importance of the mountain, Annika. The importance of the mountain is that Jesus goes up on a mountain and speaks the words of God to the people of God. This is what Moses did, right? He gave them the Ten Commandments, which were like, here's how you live as my people. You guys have been in Egypt for a long time. There was a way that you lived as slaves. That's not the way I want you to live anymore. I want you to live as my people. And he gives them the Ten Commandments, right? Jesus is the new Moses going up this new mountain, giving the new law to the new people of God. That's what the sermon is. Um, And so we want to, I said this earlier, but we want to take Jesus seriously as a sage, as a rabbi, as someone who gives us wisdom. Someone who knows what he's talking about. A lot of times we we inherit this idea about Jesus that he's sort of nice, right? He's holy, but not that he's smart. That he really knows what what life is all about. Does that make sense? Like sometimes it's easy for us to hear him say things like, don't worry about your life. You know, and we're like, yeah, right. You know, you don't know my life. (laughs) He does. But you know, like that's that's what goes through our heads, right? We, We think we have to worry. But we want to take Jesus seriously as a, as a sage, as a teacher, as a rabbi, somebody who actually knows what he's talking about, that we can take his word for what it is. Um, we also want to adopt a new posture here. So if Jesus is the new Moses bringing the new law to the new people of God, we should assume the posture of students, apprentices, people who are learning, people who are sitting at Jesus' feet. This was the posture of Mary. Remember Mary and Martha? Mary was busy working in the kitchen, and, and uh, sorry, Martha was busy working in the kitchen, and Mary comes and sits at Jesus' feet, which upset a lot of societal taboos about women, what women were supposed to do and not do. Um, but she sits at the feet of Jesus, and I want us to adopt that posture over the next 11 weeks as we hear the sermon read, as we hear it proclaimed. I want us to sit at the feet of Jesus as students and say, Lord, what do you want to say to us? What do you want to say to us? So let's come not with evaluation, but let's come with humility and say, Lord, what do you want to teach me today? And finally, a new kind of obedience uh, is the last thing uh, that I want to say. Um, the proper response of a student in, you know, who's, who's sitting at the feet of a rabbi is not necessarily to just get some new facts in their brain and not even necessarily just to do some new things. We will need to try some things if we're going to follow the sermon. But it's the, the one thing that Jesus is getting at here is he's saying, in the new kind of obedience I'm calling you into, it goes beyond, you'll, see, you'll hear this phrase, I, you need to go beyond the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Right? You guys are familiar with that phrase? We'll hear that phrase. You need to go beyond the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus is not saying that you need to be stricter than they are. He's saying you need a different kind of righteousness. You need a kind of righteousness that goes beyond it. You need to go beyond merely knowing things and doing things. You need to go beyond words and works. You need to go beyond doctrine and deeds. You need to go beyond content and conduct. Right? You need to get to the heart. You need to go below the surface. You need to understand. You need to have your character transformed. You need to become a new kind of person, a different kind of person with a different kind of character. And the best way to understand that, what kind of a person am I, is to think about what you want. What do you value? What do you treasure? We'll hear this word a lot in the sermon as well. What are the things that you reflexively, like your desires are moved towards? What the sermon is saying and what Jesus is saying to us is that's who you really are. What you value most is who you are. 
Like that's the bedrock of your character, is what you want, what you desire. And we're going to have to look at it, and there's going to be some disordered desire in our lives. This is what our DNA groups are all about, basically, by the way. Like what we do in DNA groups is essentially get below the surface. Discipleship is not just about knowing things and doing things. Discipleship is about what do I want and how can I take what I want and not trust it and just say, well, that must be God. Not deny it and assume that must not be God, but submit it and say, Jesus, what is this? What does this mean? And will you transform my desires so that they conform to yours, so that I can become a new kind of person? Okay? Obedience is kind of a dirty word for us, but uh, I want to encourage us to obey the teachings of Jesus during this sermon series. And obedience doesn't, doesn't have to be a dirty word. It just means that we're taking Jesus seriously, putting his teachings into practice. Jesus actually spends, we heard this read today, we, we actually, he actually spends quite a bit of time saying, if you don't put this into practice, it will be of no good to you. This won't do anything for you unless you put it into practice. And so this new kind of obedience goes beyond skin-deep obedience into our desires, into our true character. And that's what Jesus is seeking to transform. Amen? I want to end uh, just uh, with a quote uh, from a guy named Stanley Hauerwas, who talks about the Sermon on the Mount uh, in this way. I think this is kind of encapsulates what we're, what we're heading into together as a community. When he called his society together, Jesus gave its members a new way of life to live. He gave them a new way to deal with offenders by forgiving them. He gave them a new way to deal with violence by suffering. He gave them a new way to deal with money by sharing it. He gave them a new way to deal with the problems of leadership by drawing on the gift of every member, even the most humble. He gave them a new way to deal with a corrupt society by building a new order, not smashing the old. He gave them a new pattern of relationship between man and woman, between parent and child, between master and slave, in which was made concrete a radical new vision of what it means to be a human person. Jesus wants to make us human people. <laughs> truly human people who know, how to, who know how to live a good and beautiful life in the midst of chaos, in the midst of everything that we're dealing with. In the midst of this noise, a million voices telling us we'll finally be happy if we just get that one next thing, we proclaim today the good news that a good and beautiful life is available to us right now, today, because through Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God has come near. You can't do this alone, but this won't be done for you either. Your part is to step out in experimental faith. All right, I'll try that. <laughs> Lord, I had some different ideas about what to do with my enemies, but I'll trust you and try blessing them and see how that works for me. Okay? That's what we want to do. Over the next 11 weeks, let's sit at Jesus' feet, put his teaching into practice, try out what he says is good, experiment, even when it feels impossible, even when it feels difficult. We, we listen to what Jesus says. We stretch out our hand. You guys remember that miracle where Jesus says, stretch out your hand? It's fascinating to me that he doesn't get healed before he obeys the command, right? His hand is still shriveled. Stretch out your hand. Well, that's impossible, Jesus. But he tries it, right? He fires those neurons that he's like, well, these haven't worked in a long time. But I'll trust Jesus and try this. And as he moves out in faith, as those neurons fire, right, and the, he activates his tendons and his ligaments and his muscles and his arm. As that happens, the power of God meets him 
and he's able to accomplish something that he could never do in his own strength. That's very similar to how I want us to respond to the Sermon on the Mount over the next 11 weeks. Things are going to feel impossible. Things are going to feel difficult. Things are going to feel unrealistic. But we just stretch out our hand, and God does what we can't do in our own strength. Amen? All right, let's pray together. (sighs) Using this prayer, um, Lord Jesus, I confess that I look too blank to make me happy. So part of what we want to do is as we sit at Jesus' feet is just disconnect from those things that we automatically lean into to try to make us happy, to try to get us the good life. What is it for you? What is it for you? Maybe it's, you know, getting that, getting that job that's going to finally fulfill you, right? Maybe it's getting out of your current job. Maybe it's making a little bit more money. Maybe it's moving into a different neighborhood. What is it for you? Maybe it's things that in and of themselves are are fine and good, but you're looking to it to give you something it can never give you. Maybe you're trying to get your husband to change, your wife to change. Maybe you're looking for a good marriage or a better relationship with your kids. Those are all good things, but if you're trying to be happy by getting those things, they end up being idols, and we have to lay those down. So whatever that is for you, just fill in the blank there and and then pray this. I turn to you now as my teacher. Train me to trust you, living the good and beautiful life with these friends. We'll pray together, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Okay? All right, let's pray.